Hello, everyone. It's Thursday, January the 10th. So last week on the podcast, I talked about the Islamic Party of Ontario, or I guess you could say the IPOO, or if you pronounce that, IPU. And I went through the platform. I had some concerns. And the feedback I got was this. Why would you talk about the problems with the Islamic Party, which is provincial, but you've never said anything about the Christian Heritage Party, which is federal? A federal party should be more concerning. Today, I'm answering that question. So today, we're going to be looking at the Christian Heritage Party of Canada, or the CHP, and the Islamic Party of Ontario, or the IPU. Okay, so this podcast is going to be answering this question. Because of this, we're going to be doing some deep dive into church history and Islamic history. But first, let me give you the easy answer. I covered the Islamic Party of Ontario, or IPU, because I cover the news from this week and the history behind it. Last week when I covered the Islamic Party of Ontario, it was news because the party had officially formed at the start of the new year. I didn't cover the Heritage Party of Canada or the CHP for a couple of reasons. One, it started in 1987, so I was 10 years old at the time. Two, there's really nothing to report. In 1988, the year after it was founded, they had 63 candidates on the ballot and they received 0.78% of the popular vote. So they didn't even make 1% of the popular vote. And that was their best year. It went downhill from there. In 2015, they had just 30 candidates across all of Canada and they had 0.09% of the vote. So basically as close to zero as you can get. In the 32 years that they've been around, they've done nothing. They have not won a seat. They have not moved any policies. In fact, they have a YouTube channel that has 272 subscribers. And their intro video, they have 60 likes and 91 dislikes. So there's nothing to report. It's a completely non-story. But just for kicks, let's pretend it wasn't. What if there was a Christian party that actually had a chance of getting a few seats in Parliament or maybe even winning? How would I feel about that? Well, that's actually a very valid question, and it becomes more valid with a recent Pew Research report. So January the 3rd, the Pew Research released a report explaining the breakdown of religious affiliation with the newly elected House and Senate in the states. So the report showed the Congress is majority Protestant, and that's followed by Catholics. So the Los Angeles Times published an article that they called the new Congress is more diverse than ever, but not when it comes to religion. So the article was really clear. There's way too many Christians in office. Now, let's break this down. 
First of all, there was no Christian party. Both the Democrats and the Republicans claim to be Christian. And claim is the main word here. The people want to be voted in. And there's a poll that showed that 51% of people would not vote for someone who said that they did not believe in God. So the percentage of people who would not vote for somebody who does believe in God is basically zero. So if you're running for election and you don't believe in God, it's pretty easy to just say you do. That way you don't alienate 51% of the voting population. So really, there's not many people in Congress in the states who are Bible-believing, God-fearing, evangelical Christians. That number is small and on the Republican side of the aisle. In Canada, the number is even smaller. I know of only a few who claim to be evangelical Christians who take the Bible seriously and and have a seat in our Canadian government. But what if we did have a large number? Would that be a problem? Look, there's a huge difference between having a Christian party and a Christian being in politics. I'm pro-life. That means I'm against abortion and I'm also against doctor-assisted suicide. Or You know what? I'm against suicide in general. I want lower taxes and I want a small government. So if you run on that platform and you happen to be a Christian, being a Christian is icing on the cake for me. However, I would not vote for a Christian party. Absolutely not. To understand that, we have to delve into church history. So hold on to your hats because we're going to cover 2,000 years of history today. Okay, we're going to divide this history up into seven sections. All right. The first one we're going to look at, I'm going to call the early church. And we're looking at the years 33 to 100. And during this time, the church is actually created. Paul has his missions trips. The Council of Jerusalem opens the door to Gentile nations. I mean, before that, the church was completely made up of Jewish people. We have the Council of Germania, which confirms the Old Testament canon, the books of the Old Testament that were written. And in the year 54, a 17-year-old becomes the ruler of Rome. His name is Nero. Now, at this point, the books James, Galatians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, and 1st Corinthians had been written. During this time, Nero comes to the throne, and he's a psychopath. He kills his mother and his wife. And on July 14th in the year 64, a fire breaks out in Rome. The fire spreads and three districts of Rome are completely destroyed and seven more are extremely damaged. The people of Rome believe Nero set the fire himself. In an attempt to turn the anger away from him, Nero blames the Christians. He rounds them up and kills them, burning them alive and feeding them to lions. He then built himself a large golden house on the ground that had been destroyed by the fire. And this act of building this giant golden house seems to confirm to most Romans he probably set the fire himself. This only makes Nero continue to kill Christians. In fact, he would host evening parties and to light the garden parties, he would have Christians tied to the stake and burned alive. He would also have Christians covered in animal skins and then fed to dogs. During this time, Nero also rode a chariot in the Olympic Games. 
Then, in the year 68, he found out that he was about to be killed, so he committed suicide instead. During the years of Nero, the book 2 Corinthians, Romans, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and Acts and Ephesians, Philemon's, Colossians, Philippians, Jude, 1 Timothy, Hebrews, 1 and 2 Peter, Titus, and 2 Timothy were written. During this time period, the Jews revolt against Rome, and Rome then destroys the temple. So this was the second temple that had been built by Zerubbabel and had been updated and added on to by Herod. So it's known as Herod's temple, and it's sometimes called the third temple, even though it's actually the second temple. The first temple was Solomon's temple. Anyway, that's a bunny trail back to the early church. So John is the last disciple to die. He writes the book... Um, the three books of John and the book of Revelation. These are the last books to be written. And this is where we end this period, the early church. Next stage that we go into is that a period I like to call the persecuted church. It covers the years 90 to about 311. And during this time period, there are 10 waves of extreme persecution. Now you might be thinking Nero sign kind of seemed extreme but it actually gets worse over the next 200 years. And as a side note, it was the start of this period that China invented paper. This, of course, would be really important to church history as our Bible would eventually be printed on it. There are 10 different periods of persecution in this time, but there were three that were the most extreme. Now, I'm not going to pronounce these names right, but I promise you I'm doing the best I can. All right, Domitian, Dicius and Diocletian. During this time, Rome was celebrating 1,000 years as the world leader, and there was an attempt to go back to their ancient religions. Christianity was still seen as this new religion, and the Roman leaders tried hard to kill it off. It was during this time that Colosseums were used as a way to kill Christians. Men, women, and even children were fed to lions in front of large crowds of bloodthirsty people. Gladiators would kill Christian men to the cheers of screaming fans. It was a terrifying time to be a Christian. The church met in secret, literally in underground chambers, which is where this term, the underground church, comes from. But it continued to grow. It was during this time period where the church grew in its strength and its numbers. During this time period, the books of the New Testament were still all individual books. They were passed around and read by the church. There was a list of books that were seen as authoritative and from God. All of our books of the New Testament were listed on this list except for Hebrews and Revelation. Those two books were added to the list, but not until the year 367. So this leads us to the next time period. So, so far we have the early church, the persecuted church, and this time period I call the Balaam period. It covers 300 to 500. Now, I take this title, the Balaam period, from the book of Revelation. The third church Jesus talks about says it had a doctrine of Balaam. So what is the doctrine of Balaam? Well, in the Old Testament, Balaam tries to curse Israel, but every time he opens his mouth, a blessing comes out instead. So eventually he decides the only way to curse Israel was to become friends with Israel and then corrupt it from the inside. This is what happens to the church during this time period of the year 300 to the year 500, and it's why I call it the Balaam period. 
Satan had been attacking the church during our last time period in the persecuted church time period, and it had only grown. So now the enemies of the church will be friends with it and corrupt it from the inside. All right, the new leader at this time is Constantine. He comes to the throne, and he's a Christian, and so is his wife, Helena. Okay, so some people don't believe Constantine was a Christian. We don't know his heart. He claimed to be, and so did his wife, so I'm going with that. Constantine made Christianity the Roman religion. This, of course, seemed like a great idea to the Christians. I mean, this is a long jump from being fed to lions in the Colosseum. The problem is you can't force someone to be a Christian. That's not how it works. In one day, every Roman soldier converted to Christianity and was baptized. Obviously, this was not a true conversion. They were forced to do this in order to keep their jobs. Then all the pagan temples were turned into churches. All the pagan priests became Christian priests. And all the pagan festivals became Christian festivals. During this time, there were some really important church councils. There is Nicaea, and this is the one I talked about with the history of Santa Claus, because St. Nick was actually at this council, and he punched this guy in the face for saying Jesus was not God. But you can read more about that in my blog. If you want to, check it out at laureliesiemens.com. Some other councils, like Constantinople, Ephesus, and Shelton, during this time, all 27 books of the Old Testament are confirmed. And Constantine has the idea to put all the books of the Old and New Testament into one publication, giving us for the first time the Bible. The Bible was also printed in Latin, the language of the people. So things seem to be going really well for the church. But the church and the state have now been connected. And while that seems like a good idea at the time, what it ends up doing is bringing in a lot of bad theology. The pagan priests merge their pagan beliefs with Christian beliefs, creating some horrible theology. Also, if you want to have any power in Rome at all, you must have power in the church. So as we come to the end of this time period, pastors no longer are worried about the spiritual care of their congregation. They're more concerned with their position of power. And that is why I would never vote for a Christian party, even if I agree with everything they believed in. Even if I believe that they had good intentions, history shows that when the church and the state collide, it's not good for the church. This brings us to the next stage, and I call this the dark age of the church from the year 500 to the year 1500. It's a thousand years of darkness. During this time, religious Rome becomes the power of the world. Across the world, if you want to hold on to your crown, you must accept the religion of Rome, which, by the way, at this point in time, only holds a small resemblance to Christianity. The power behind the crown in most countries is the Roman church, and that power is evil. At the start of this time period in the year 570, a man named Abul Qasan was born in Mecca. He would later change his name to Mohammed. At the age of 30, he said he was visited by Gabriel. That's the angel we see in the Bible. And that Gabriel gave him a message. He then began to preach and try to get followers. For 12 years, he preached and he ended up with a small group of people. He then traveled to Medina. Now, this was the Jewish business hub at the time. And he tried to convince the Jewish people to join his group. This is one of the reasons we see so many similarities between Jews and Muslims. 
Abdul Qasam, was writing the Quran at the time, and he made a lot of things the same as the Jews in the hopes that the Jews would join his group. Now, you will see the Quran speak about peace and love, and Muhammad called the Jewish people people of the book and the Christians people of the cross. In order to raise money for his new religion, Muhammad and his men would raid caravans and steal everything. This made them very wealthy men. Now, the Jews and the Christians in Medina were not interested in joining his club, so he killed them. In the year 628, Muhammad led a force of 10,000 men into Mecca. Muhammad declared war on the Christians and the Jews. He called them a dhimmi, or a second-class citizen, and the dhimmi had to pay the Jesuit, or the tax, or convert to Islam. Christians could not ring church bells, Jews could not blow the shofar, there would be no churches, no synagogues, and the Jews and Christians had to kneel whenever they saw a Muslim, and they had to pay the tax. Whenever they would pay a tax, they would be given a necklace, and they would have to wear the necklace to show that they had paid the tax. In the next 10 years, Muhammad had conquered all of Arabia. Muhammad died in the year 632, the same year he finished writing the Quran. Now, a few pages of the Quran were actually eaten by a goat, and these were pages where Muhammad had told people to stone women if they had sex outside of marriage. So even when Muhammad died, there was not even one full copy of the Quran. Also, Muhammad died in the arms of his favorite wife, Aisha, who he married at the age of nine and also beat on a regular basis. Okay, so after he died, Islam was taken over by a name named Abu Bakr, and the first caliphate was created. They began to attack India, North America, Spain. Some historians think that they would have ruled the known world at the time if they had not been stopped in 732 at the Battle of Tours. Islam had grown, and they would give the Jews a yellow star to wear, and the Christians had to wear a special belt. The capital was Baghdad, and the caliphate who ruled was the most powerful man on earth, even more powerful than any crown or the head of the Roman church. Now, that's when we have a clash. The Roman church is the power behind the crowns, and Islam is now a threat to that power. Both the power of the crown and the power of the Roman church were worried about the power of Islam. It was a hot mess, and it led to the Crusades. In the first crusade, Jerusalem was liberated, which is great. Now, some people will right away say, well, the Crusades were horrible. Not all of them. Actually, some good things happened in the Crusades. And in the first crusade, when Jerusalem was liberated, that was a good thing. The Jews could finally live in peace again, and that lasted for 100 years. But after 100 years, Islam took control of it again, and the city of Jerusalem would not be free until the year 1967. The Crusades lasted for about 300 years, and eventually Islam basically won. They went to Europe, China, India, Spain, everywhere they conquered. They made the Jews and Christian pay the tax, and therefore they continued to grow. Both Islam and the Roman church were growing. In the areas where Islam didn't control the land, the church owned one-third of the land. The church ruled over the kings, and in order to keep control of the people, the church claimed to have the power to doom people to hell or to give acceptance to heaven. Even after a person died, they could change their destiny. So people were forced to pay the church money to make sure their family members who had died would not go to hell. The only way to convince people of this was to make it illegal to read the Bible. So the Bible was for priests only. 
and it was against the law to print the Bible in the language of the people. And by this peak time, most people could not read or even speak Latin, and that was the only Bible that was available. So people had to trust the priest was telling the truth when he would tell them what was in the Bible. In the year 1440, the Gutenberg Press was invented, and that marked the end of the control that the church had. It was only a matter of time before the peasants had the Bible for themselves, and the truth would set them free. So in this time of the dark age of the church, we learn the harsh reality of what happens when the state and the church marry. The next stage of church history is the Reformation period. This is the years 1500 to 1700, and it starts with a man named Martin Luther, who is hit by lightning but survives. He decides to leave law school and become a monk. At this point, the church is selling something called indulgences. You can go to the church and buy a sheet of paper that will give you forgiveness for a sin before you commit the sin. This cost a person a half of a year's wage. This teaching was the first teaching that Martin Luther spoke out against. As a monk, he was allowed to read the Bible, and clearly this concept was not in the Bible. He also began to see the Roman church was not a church at all. It was just a political power. On October 31st, 1517, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the door of his church. It pointed out all the things that were not in the Bible that the Roman church was teaching. Then, the Bible was printed in German, the first Bible printed in the common language of the peasant. This was the end of the political rule of the Roman church. During this time period, the Protestant Christian faith emerged. This came out in many different denominations as the people began reading the Bible for the first time. It was clear the evangelical Christians would not gain political power. In fact, they wouldn't even try to gain political power. However, what they would do is they would prove to have the greatest influence over history. At this point, the church completely lost control of the peasants. Both the church and the crown went into a panic. Social revolts spread across the land. People began to fight against the corruption of the church and also started to revolt against the landowners demanding freedom. At this point, Luther ended up standing with the church against the revolters and even began to print some very anti-Semitic papers. So while he is crucial to the start of Reformation, he didn't end well. During this time, at least 100,000 people were killed when they stood up against the Roman church. They were burned alive and beheaded, but the true church had been reborn and began growing on a massive scale. On the positive outcome of all this, the corruption of the Catholic Church was stopped, well, at least to an extent. The idea of protesting to bring reform was created, and that idea is still used today. Many philosophers, such as Max Weber, believe this was the beginning of capitalism in our world. Max Weber wrote that capitalism will only work in a nation that is primarily made of Protestants, since their faith teaches the biblical principle of hard work and also the personal aspects of forgiveness of sins. At the same time the control of the Roman church was ending, the control of the Islamic regime was also ending. Islam had continued to evade country after country and force people to convert or pay a tax or die. Finally, at the gates of Vienna on 9-11 in the year 1683, they were stopped. The date 9-11 became a very symbolic date in the Muslim faith. 
At this point, Islam had covered more ground than the Romans had ever covered. They had been more powerful than the Romans had been. Even though on this day they were stopped from invading other countries, they still held control of most of the Middle East and were still considered an Islamic empire. So while the Roman church fell during this time period, the Islamic empire continued to have power. All right, the next time period is the time period in the church I call the Age of Revival, from 1700 to 1900. By the time the 1700 comes around, the church had grown and had a clear view of Christianity. And this can be seen where they would begin to end injustices. It was during this time that the Protestant church put an end to the slave trade and child labor. New governments and even new countries were formed on the principles of Protestantism and freedom. This, of course, was the United States and Canada. And while we tend to look at the start of the United States in the 1700s and judge them for their slave trade, we fail to see this was just the start of a great age, an age in church history that was given all of us the freedom we enjoy today. When we judge them, we're not seeing the whole picture. During this time, we have great leaders who paved the way for the church to grow across the world. People like D.L. Moody, Charles Spurgeon, George Mueller, George Whitfield, Hudson Taylor, Judson, William Carey, David Livingston, John and Betty Stand, and so many more. This is the time period when our great hymns were written and revivals spread across Europe and the Americas and the whole world. The church grew in China and Africa and every door God opened, the church charged through and spread the good news of Jesus Christ. This was the greatest time in church history. And then we have our present church. This is the age I call today from the 1900s to today. First of all, let's look at Islam. During the start of the 1900s, the church was seeing an impact that they had on Europe. Turkey began to push back against Islam, and in 1924, in Turkey, the Islamic empire ended. It became illegal to wear the hijab or to grow a beard. For the first time, rights were given to women. At this point, the Islamic empire had existed for 1,400 years. That means it ended less than 100 years ago. 270 million people were killed by Islam during the Islamic Empire. Then, of course, we had the Nazis followed by communism. Both killed millions of people. In both of these horrible ideologies, Christians were killed. And then in the 70s, Islam began to rise up again, taking over countries like Iran and squelching freedoms and making women wear the hijab and not have any rights, and here we are today. Islam is once again on the move. They're taking control of the Middle East. They're starting to take control of Europe. Some would already say they already have control of Europe, and now they're trying to take America and Canada. And what do I hear every time I say I have concerns about Islam? Well, what about the Crusades and the Inquisition? Yes, the dark ages of our church history were dark. They were bad, and we learned from that. We learned it's a bad idea to merge the church and the state. Even if you have a good leader like Constantine, the church will become corrupt. And let's face it, that time period was not the church. It was the political power that used the church to control its citizens. Islam has not come to that understanding yet. They still want political power. And when you get political power, they demand you either convert, pay a tax, or die. 
They haven't changed. They still stone women to death, even though that page of the Quran was actually eaten by a goat. So it's unclear what that teaching actually was. They still throw gays off the top of the largest building. They still believe in slavery, and currently there's a large, active, open slave trade in parts of Africa controlled by Islam. They still believe in child marriages. In fact, a female child, once they're old enough to be seen as sexual, must wear a head covering. So when you see a five or six-year-old girl in Canada wearing a head covering, you should have some concerns about that. Terror attacks are on the rise in Africa and the Middle East and Europe and North America. And all we hear in response to that is that Islam is a religion of peace. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. Church history has its problems. And these problems emerged whenever political power is given to the people in the church. In many of these areas, Christians are heavily persecuted and Christianity is outlawed. In Muslim countries, there is still a Christian tax that has to be paid to Islam. Here's a clip from PragerU, and I'm going to have the link to this clip in the comments below. Which is the most persecuted religious group in the world today? The answer, in terms of sheer numbers and sheer horror, might surprise you. It's Christians, specifically Christians living in Muslim-majority countries, countries where Christians often preceded Muslims by centuries. I'm not talking about war on Christmas type harassment. I'm talking about know your place or we're going to kill you persecution. Astonishingly, the Western mainstream media barely acknowledge what is happening. Let's look closer at this issue. It tells us a lot about the world we're living in. 100 years ago, 20% of North Africa and the Middle East, the birthplace of Christianity, was Christian. Today, Christians make up 4% of the population. Much of that decline has occurred in the last decade. In essence, Muslims are rendering North Africa and the Middle East free of Christians. Take Egypt, for example, my ancestral homeland. In just the past two years, tens of thousands of Christian cops have left Egypt. And many others want to leave, but they simply cannot afford to. Why they want to leave is no mystery. On New Year's Day, 2011, the Two Saints Church in Alexandria was bombed, leaving 23 cops dead and 97 injured. In recent years, dozens of Coptic churches have been attacked, many burned to the ground. In August 2013 alone, the Muslim Brotherhood and its supporters attacked and destroyed some 80 churches. Unfortunately, Egypt is more the rule than the exception. Hundreds of Nigerian churches have been destroyed in recent years, with especially deadly attacks reserved for Christmas and Easter church services, leaving dozens dead or mutilated. Churches have been bombed or burned in Iraq, Syria, and just about every place in the Middle East where churches still exist except Israel. Christian businesses have been torched, Christian girls have been kidnapped, sold as child brides or slaves, and had acid thrown in their faces for not being veiled. Anyone born a Muslim who converts to Christianity faces jail and possibly execution. The list of fresh atrocities by Muslims against Christians grows longer almost every day. Even in Muslim countries often portrayed as moderate, Morocco, Indonesia, Malaysia, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Christian minorities are under legal pressure not to build churches or evangelize. The Christians in these Muslim countries are often identical to their co-citizens in race, ethnicity, national identity, culture, and language. There is no political dispute between the Christians and Muslims, no land dispute. Vastly outnumbered and politically marginalized, these Christians simply wish to worship in peace. Instead, they are hounded and attacked. So then, why is this happening? And why is the media making so little mention of it? The first question is easy to answer. Christians are being persecuted in Muslim countries because they're Christians, or as the Quran puts it, infidels. That is, non-Muslims who are regarded by many fundamentalist Muslims as inferior. As a fundamentalist interpretation of the holy books of Islam has grown in the last 50 or so years, 
Christians have suffered, and in recent years they have suffered terribly. I document this in my book, Crucified Again, exposing Islam's new war on Christians. If this were happening to any other group besides Christians, it would be the human rights tragedy of our time. There would be loud worldwide calls for action. But the silence in the mainstream Western media is, as they say, almost deafening. Why? Because Muslim persecution of Christians throws a wrench in the media's narrative that Muslim violence is a product of Muslim grievance. That grievance is, first and foremost, portrayed as the sin of European colonialism and alleged American imperialism. In the Muslim world's mind, those two sins are personified by the Jewish state of Israel, a nation the Muslim world believes was forced upon it by the colonial powers of Europe following World War II and is currently supported by the United States. Much of the Western world and the Western media have largely bought at least some of this narrative. Here's how it works. Because Israel, with the backing of the United States, is stronger than its Muslim neighbors, the media, while not defending Islamic terrorism, often portray terror against Israel, America, and even Europe as the actions of understandably angry underdogs fighting for what they deem justice. But what happens to this media narrative when Islamic terror is directed against the minority weaker than them? In this case, the millions of indigenous Christians throughout the Islamic world. The answer is that, rather than abandon this narrative, the media just don't report Muslim persecution of Christians, except for the most sensational cases. That's why you probably don't know that there are barely any Christians living in Algeria, Tunisia, and Libya, nations where Christianity once thrived, or that this is happening in Egypt, Iraq, Iran, and even Lebanon. So yes, Christians are indeed the most persecuted religious group in the world today, but reporting it would violate the media's narrative of Christians as persecutors and Muslims as victims. I'm Raymond Ibrahim, author of the Al-Qaeda Reader for Prager University. Last year, on average, 250 Christians were killed a month, killed for being Christians. Islam has its problems, and it's a religion that's based on political power. The Muslim's sacred mission is to bring by force the whole world under the submission of Islam. What will generations look back on and call this time period? So no, I won't vote for the Christian Heritage Party or the Islamic Party. Neither one. Now, I only touched on church history. There's so much more. But maybe I've whet your appetite. One of the sessions I teach is called History Matters. We should be teaching church history in our churches. I have a session showing youth and children's pastors how to implement this teaching into your ministry. You can check out my teaching ministry on my website, lauraleesiemens.com. And I will be doing podcasts this summer with a lot of church history. So subscribe to the podcast so you won't miss it. In the meantime... Let me explain in a nutshell what Christianity believes. We believe God created the world. We believe God created man and women in his image and he loves us and wants to have a relationship with us. We believe there's only one God and we believe God is holy and that means he's separated from sin. He can have no part in sin. But sin entered the world through Adam and death entered the world through sin. So death came to the whole world. And we are separated from God. Sin is when we do things our way instead of God's way. And the Bible says all of us have sinned. We have turned away from God and we have done things our own way. But God in his love came to earth. Jesus is God. Jesus lived with us. He loves us. He's perfect. And when he died, he took the punishment for our sins on himself. Jesus did not stay dead. He came back to life and proved he is God. But when we turn from our sin and turn to God and ask for forgiveness, he will save us from our sin. He'll save us from the punishment of our sin and from the power of our sin. Sin will no longer have power over us and we will no longer be separated from God. 
It's so simple a child can do it, and yet so complex hundreds of theology books have been written about it. So it comes down to this. For God so loved the world, he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. For God did not come into this world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. I'm Laura Lee Siemens. For more videos, podcasts, and blogs, go to lauraleesiemens.com.